You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. have your Bible to open up to John chapter 13. And if you don't have a Bible pew and you want to use the Bible that's there in the pew, and if you don't have a Bible at all, or maybe someone in your life who needs one, take that Bible as our gift to you today. And if you're using your phones, which is totally fine, if you use the YouVersion Bible app and follow the instructions up on that screen, you'll come right up to the scripture that we're looking at this morning. If you haven't been with us ever, or haven't been here in a while. We've been going through the story for 2017. Looks like this. It's a condensed narrative, 31 chapters of the story of the Bible. And this is our way of going through the scriptures in the entirety of the year, and it's been quite a journey. And today, our journey in the story brings us to the moment that God has been leading everything that has proceeded before it. It seems so long ago Way back in January, we were in Genesis chapter 3 at the scene of the crime. The day paradise was lost. The day we all died. We died to what could have been. We died to the kind of life we were meant to live. However, from the very beginning, despite our tragic start, and even though we just kept stumbling in the dark, from day one, God has been laying the groundwork for our salvation and all creation's redemption. Again and again, we've seen through the story, in the midst of everything gone wrong, the Lord has been carefully plotting the direction to set everything, all of us, right. All that's unfolded, where we've been so far, none of these things have been arbitrary events in history, the cosmic cosmic checking off of a random list of things that God has to do. No, what we've experienced these last few months is God's salvation plan is a story. It's the story of how from the moment we fell from grace, our Father initiated a plan to pick us back up, back into his arms as his beloved children. Now, Today, that master of plan, that greatest of stories comes to its zenith in the most unlikely of places and in the most unanticipated of ways. And the shock and awe of this twist actually began a few weeks ago, you might remember, with the reality of the incarnation. The author of the story entered the narrative. God came down for us and with us in Jesus Christ. This in and of itself was enough and still is to give us pause And yet the full astonishment of this unexpected turn of events had yet to be realized, yet to be revealed until this moment when a triumphal entry into the city of peace, the city of Jerusalem, gave way to a forsaken exit through bloody violence at a place called Calvary. Until the word made flesh became the betrayed and scorned Messiah. My friends, today is all about the cross, in other words. Today is all about the cross. How a standard and yet unspeakably horrible punishment implemented to warn anyone who resisted the reign of the empires of this world was transformed into a beacon of life and hope to lead others into the salvation of the kingdom of God. Today is all about not just the cross, but today is all about who is on the cross. 
The one named Jesus who isn't so much handed over as he comes willing to die. The Christ we have rejected to the point of trying to put him down once and for all is revealed as truly the Son of God, purposefully come down in order to be strung up, crucified, and bled dry so we might live. Earlier this fall, just about a month ago, we had Christmas in September. And today, it's going to be Good Friday on a Sunday in October. Together, we're going to ponder anew the truth and love of the cross of Christ. And our text this morning, as you've opened to it, if you've looked down at it, it all might surprise you. We're not at the foot of the cross in order to reflect upon what happened on Calvary. We're going to go back to the beginning of the evening. The night before, when Jesus prepared his disciples for what was about to happen and why. And if you have that open, let's read from John chapter 13, starting in verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer cloth, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Two things we're going to reflect upon today. Two things. First, we're going to reflect upon our understanding of the meaning and significance of the cross. And second, we're going to reflect upon what it looks like to live out the meaning and significance of the cross as revealed through the story, the Bible. I don't know if you caught what I just did there, but I'm distinguishing things to say that the two things that we're going to look at, the two perspectives, are not always the same. How we look at the cross and understand it is not always the same as how the Bible understands and reveals the meaning and message of the cross. I also want to say that with today's message, things are going to be a little different in that we are not going to get into the passage right away. We're going to come back to it in the middle of the sermon. So bear with me if I don't start talking about what we just read. So first, let's briefly talk about our understanding of the meaning, 
the significance of the cross. After all, this is the centerpiece of our story. It's the foundation of our faith as Christians. For over 2,000 years, a global community spanning generations has been formed, grounded in the conviction that the cross changes everything. Specifically, our shared testimony is about the cross of Christ. Together, we testify everything wrong in this world and in our lives was narrowed down and willingly placed and carried on the shoulders of one man named Jesus, who also happened to be God. Because he died in our place thanks to his sacrificially and perfect bearing of the weight of the world on his shoulders, we can live. He carries us forward. His condemnation is our salvation. This is part of what we call the gospel, a word that simply means good news. And when this news was first announced, it was hard for anyone to believe. It was too impossible, a stumbling block to any theologically sound Jew. Messiahs aren't cursed. God can't die. It was too irrational, foolishness to any reasonable Gentile. The victorious conquer. They do not fail. The strongest survive. The mighty overthrow. They do not fall. They do not die. At first, believing, let alone understanding what happened at the cross and why was not easy or obvious to anyone. It was only in retrospect that the first followers of Jesus, the very first disciples, were just beginning to figure out, starting to understand the aftershock of Calvary. And that's why after we're in the Gospels, we have the acts of the apostles and the letters that make up the rest of the story. That was then. But this is now. 2,000 years later, things have dramatically changed. Not that we understand more about Christ on the cross, but that we appear to care less, to take it all for granted, to take it as a given. The historical reality of the cross has become so familiar to us, as internalized as the Bible verse which serves as its shorthand, John 3.16, that the shadow cast by the light of the cross has actually gotten smaller in our lives rather than bigger. Today, even those who don't know Jesus, who don't necessarily believe in him, wear the cross as a fashion statement. What the very first followers of Jesus took as their logo, the symbol of the heart of their message, their faith, has become for some nothing more than an, a clothing accessory for hipsters. But it's not just outsiders who have diminished the cross of Christ. Even we, who know this part of the story so well, have taken license, unintentionally perhaps, reducing the significance and impact of the transformative moment of the cross. If I were to ask you right now, what is the gospel? What is the meaning of the cross? I'd venture to guess that most of you would express something like this. One, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Two, if I accept this gift on my behalf, I am saved. Three, I am saved from death and hell and sent to heaven for eternal life. Now, perhaps you might add or frame this along with a few spiritual laws or a fourfold prayer of, I'm sorry, forgive me, please, and thank you. 
This presentation of the meaning of the cross is true as far as it goes. The problem is it just stops way short of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The meaning of the cross, the significance of the cross is so much more, so much bigger than this. The historical reality and significance of Jesus on the cross cannot be fully described or appreciated through a couple of spiritual laws. The declaration and ramification of the gospel, the good news that God in Christ has died for us, cannot be distilled down to a simple fourfold prayer. Well-intentioned as they may be, our attempts to summarize the gospel, to make the message of the cross more compact and user-friendly, Jesus died so we could escape the results of sin and go to heaven when we die. What we've done is we've reduced the full passion of Jesus to a single transactional experience. Let me give you a further example. For decades now, decades, a classic starter for sharing the gospel, the message of the cross has been, do you know for sure you'd go to heaven when you die? What then followed was a shorthand version about Jesus that I mentioned previously, followed by a description of the things one needs to believe, to accept in order to gain access to heaven. If the proposal is embraced, a prayer is prayed. The one who prays this prayer is affirmed about their heavenly destination. The presenter then leaves pleased that he or she got one more person into heaven, and now moves on to share Jesus and get the next person inside those pearly gates. The new believer goes on with his or her normal life, perhaps joining a church, maybe learning to read the Bible, praying before meals or at bedtime, but definitely warmed to know he or she has got that whole death thing figured out. For a moment, if this has been your exposure, maybe this has even been your shorthand, consider the implications of this slimmed-down gospel. Framed this way, the good news is primarily about the future and not the present. A heavenly benefit, to be sure, but not an earthly one. Claimed not while you live, but when you die. The impression one is left with is the meaning of the cross has nothing to do with how we live here and now other than the comfort and security of knowing our lives will continue even after they end on this earth. And the net result of this gospel is a nation, a world full of people who claim to be Christians, who profess to believe in what Jesus has done for them, but who aren't following Jesus, who aren't living anything like Jesus now. Many so-called Christians, let's be honest, Many so-called Christians live no differently than those whom they pity, than those whom they judge, or worse, condemn. All that separates them from anyone else is the spiritual life insurance tucked away inside their safe, that golden ticket to heaven that they carry around in their back pocket. What's in your wallet? Meanwhile, other believers, other believers start to wonder after a while. Maybe this has happened to you. There's this troubling little part of the shorthand gospel sales pitch they were given that gnaws at them, 
It's this little thing that gets quickly mentioned, but lingers, you know, uncomfortably afterwards. And it goes something like this. Jesus died for my sins because there's this contract called the Ten Commandments that I haven't honored. The law of God is like a moral exam. I can't pass. None of us human can. No, no, no one can. Which is a problem because God demands perfection. God is holy and he can't be near failures, sinners like us. Unless something is done about this mess that covers us and this whole wide world. So, God sent Jesus to die for our sins. To clean up this mess. To make us more presentable so we can come home to heaven when we die. Turn or burn. Turn to Jesus and get clean. Or burn in hell. Where you and that all that filthy sin can get disposed of. Chew on this a while, and you'll see where this version of the gospel leads you. John 3.16 suddenly becomes, For God so hated the world that he killed his one and only Son. For God so hated the world that he killed his one and only Son. Jesus was the good guy, the scapegoat, the sacrificial lamb, the dutiful son who stepped in between we, endangered sinners, and our angry father. We got problems, man. If this is the gospel, we got problems. But the good news, the truth is, this isn't the gospel at all. What I want you to hear first and foremost this morning, beloved, our understanding of the gospel as we express it, as we share it, as many of us articulate it today, is too small. And therefore, it is really, really skewed. The message of the cross isn't simply that God our Father made a legal contract with us, gave us a moral exam, and we all flunked it. We can't pass can't pass the exam, we can't keep the terms of the contract, so Jesus showed up to square things for us with Dad. The good news of the gospel isn't just about a commission of a sentence, a death row pardon, a stay of execution, that Jesus takes our place so we can survive and escape hell and now get to go to heaven. The Bible tells a much bigger story. The Bible tells a much bigger story. The gospel is so much greater than this. As we read the rest of the story in these next few weeks, we don't have much time left to go. We're going to go and finish right before Thanksgiving. But as we read the rest of the story from here on in, the Acts of the Apostles, as I mentioned, and the letters that follow, I want to challenge you. Please take this challenge. I want to challenge you to notice how little the cross and the gospel are reduced to mere transactional forgiveness and a heavenly reservation. Read carefully what follows. All that Paul, Peter, John, and the rest articulate about the message of the gospel. And what you will find, and it may shock you, you will notice little to any mention of a personal decision for Christ. A vision of just going up to the clouds to be with God. And when you're disconcerted and when you start asking, where did we get this from? Never you mind answering that question. But instead, dive into the Word of God itself and find out what our story is all about. 
Find out just how much bigger the gospel is. Find out just how much greater the reality, the historical reality of the cross is. And that leads us to our second insight, the second thing. I've shared with you our understanding of the message and significance of the cross, of the gospel. But now, let's talk about the meaning and significance of the cross as revealed by the Bible. As we read through the rest of the story, the message, the answer of the cross, isn't primarily about God and Christ forgiving your sins or mine. The message, the answer of the cross, is ultimately about God and Christ saving the universe, redeeming, reconciling, and restoring a world where things are not the way they're supposed to be, where life was created to be different, more full, more abundant, more everlasting than it is. You know, we're in the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, and we're going to get all giddied up about Luther and the Reformation. My friends, the cross is the real Reformation. Every Reformation that's come since has been about getting back to the heart of the message of the cross, getting back to the gospel. You don't have to be a Protestant. It doesn't matter if you're a Catholic. It doesn't matter if you're Greek Orthodox. The real Reformation is the message of the cross. As we read through the rest of the story, and I really want you to get excited about this, what's going to stand out is this multifaceted reflection of the cross and the gospel. It's going to be about divine forgiveness. Yes, indeed. But even more so, what you're going to see, this is all about, our gospel is all about, is the defeat of the powers of evil that have kept not just your life or mine, but the powers of evil that have kept this universe in captivity. You know, what helps me to think about the fullness of the gospel message is the sorcerer's apprentice. Anyone remember this? Fantasia, right? Remember this story? If you don't have any idea what this is, I'll give it to you real quick. Mickey is an apprentice of a sorcerer. And the sorcerer wears the hat, the sorcerer does the magic, and Mickey does the chores. But Mickey wants to wear the hat. But the sorcerer says, you're not ready to wear the hat. But Mickey's not convinced. And so while the sorcerer is away, the mouse decides to play. The mouse takes the hat. Mickey takes the hat, and you see in the picture at first, he's up on top of a hill. He's like creating things, man. He's making it happen. And all of a sudden, he decides, hey, I got an idea. Why should I be a servant? Why should I be a steward? I'm going to make the broom do all the work. And I'm going to sit back in the chair and I'm going to be the ruler of the universe. (laughs) If you know this story, things don't work out too well for Mickey. Because all of a sudden, waters start to rise. He starts to drown. And here's the thing about this story. I could go on, but I don't. The real dilemma in this story that is not that Mickey is drowning. In the story, that's what Mickey thinks his problem is. I'm drowning. I'm going to die here. But the real problem in this story is not that Mickey is drowning. The real problem, the bigger problem, is such chaos has broken loose and keeps multiplying, it threatens to destroy everything. From our perspective, the gospel is all about, save me, I need to be forgiven, I'm drowning here. Yes, you are. But the problem and the answer is much bigger than that. It's not just about the water 
It's about the chaos. It's about the world not operating the way it's supposed to. My friends, as we read the rest of the story, you're going to see what we're going to overhear in these letters and in the Acts of the Apostles is talk, not of changing our address, going from here to there. But instead, we're going to hear talk, can you believe it, of heaven coming down to earth. Not of this world going to hell. And please, if you're a follower of Jesus, stop spewing that false theology. This world is not going to hell. That is not the gospel. The gospel is that God says what God has initiated on the cross is this world is being transformed into something new. Now let's look at our passage so you can see what I mean. In the upper room, Jesus begins teaching his disciples about the message and the significance of the cross by washing their feet. Just as Jesus, think about this, this picture that we're given by John. Just as Jesus will sacrifice himself, he's going to lower himself to become a scapegoat. He's going to be sheared, stripped, and left naked on display to take away the sins of all. Notice, here in the upper room, as their master and Lord, Jesus humbles himself, strips down, and takes the role of a servant and cleanses them. And, and just because of something we talked about earlier, it's important we not miss, at the start of this passage, what's made very clear to us of why Jesus does this, why he washes the feet of his disciples, and more broadly, why Jesus offers his life on the cross. If you go back to verse 1, you can't miss that why Jesus does this is not to placate an angry father, Jesus does this as the ultimate expression of his relationship with his father. And out of that relationship of both father and son, of one God in relationship with his own, his people, this is about an expression of love. A more accurate translation of the verse there in chapter 1 at the end is not Jesus loved them to the end. Our NIV says, and Jesus loved them to the end. A more accurate translation, which teases out what I'm getting at, is Jesus showed them the full extent of his love. God's love. Some of you have been given a gospel that is small and skewed. Beloved, I want you to hear this. Our God is holy. H-O-L-Y. Our God is holy. Completely set apart. Absolutely perfect. Totally righteous. That's what holy means. But here's the thing. God's holiness is about his love, not his wrath. God's holiness is about his love, not his wrath. My friends, in Greek and Roman mythology... If you go beyond Greek and Roman mythology to the pantheon of all the so-called gods of other religions, what you find are detailed stories of capricious, temperamental deities who are easily offended but not so easily appeased. None of them, none of them speak a kind of love that is about these gods transcend a love that transcends their anger, a love that transforms their people. The God of Israel, the one true God of all the world revealed in Jesus Christ, is different. He's no such would-be deity. He is holy. He is completely set apart. He is absolutely perfect. He is totally righteous. 
but he is all those things in the uniqueness and fullness of his love, not his wrath. His love, not his wrath. To be sure, and some of you are freaking out because you've been told, well, if God's not, if this God love thing, we've got to deal with sin. God's got to deal with sin. My friends, God is serious about sin, okay? The Lord takes our rejection. The Lord takes our rebellion. The Lord takes all the pain, suffering, and chaos that ensue because of those things seriously. God takes it seriously. However, such seriousness emerges out of God's love for us and his creation. The Lord doesn't want us to suffer. God desires that none should perish. He created this universe and all of us not merely to survive, but to thrive, to flourish together. My friends, if you've been sold a bill of goods that our God is a God ultimately of wrath, that man, he is just angry, that he can't deal with failures like you and me, that he can't be near sinners like us, that this world is going to hell, so God's just going to wipe it out. Think about it. A God whose holiness is about his wrath scorches the earth and wipes us from the planet. But a God whose holiness is born of his love empties himself of his divinity, comes down to our level, not to take us out, but to lift us up. Our God is not a distant, faceless bureaucrat or bullying taskmaster. Our God revealed in Christ is the one who remarkably, unexpectedly comes into the middle of our mess, the pain and sorrows of this world, and takes the full force of all of it upon himself. That Jesus in this passage, don't miss this, humbles and serves disciples that he knows will each fall away one by one, further reveals a God on the cross whose holiness is not defined by his wrath, but by his love. And when we get to the cross, scourged by the prejudice and injustice of politics, spit upon by the hypocrisy and hard-heartedness of legalistic and mean-spirited religion, slapped in the face by the betrayal, denial, and abandonment of those he called friends, this God, whose holiness is born not of his wrath, but of his love, mercifully extends forgiveness rather than deserved condemnation. In other words, Jesus doesn't offer his life and bear the burden of those, of, of those who embrace and accept him. Jesus doesn't offer his life and bear the burden of those who embrace and accept him. No, the God whose holiness is born not of his wrath but of his love sacrifices himself, hangs suspended on a cross, stretched out and holding together heaven and earth, making a way home even for those who reject and condemn him. Even for those who know not what they do. Who know not what they do. You know, you look at this passage in the upper room as Jesus washes their feet, and at first, it seems like this is in line with our truncated understanding of the gospel. I mean, Jesus dies on the cross in order to forgive us, to make us clean, right with God. And again, that's what we see, Jesus goes and cleans his disciples to make them right with God. And we could say, see, maybe we're not far off, but don't stop with what Jesus does. Pay attention to what Jesus says. Notice how Jesus goes further and actually tells his disciples. He is enacted and embodied for them and is explaining, even more than the institution of Holy Communion, 
the implications of what he's just done, but also what he's going to do on the cross. He tells them, this is what this is about. He says, I have set an example for you. As I have humbled myself and washed your feet, so you must humble yourselves and serve each other. And don't overlook the last thing that Jesus says here. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. To fully appreciate, again, where I'm, where I'm pointing to here, what Jesus is saying, as well as the context of the cross, we not just only need to listen to what Jesus says, but we also need to pay close attention and remember when all this is happening. John tells us this when is really important. All of this is going down. What Jesus does washing their feet, it's going to happen on the cross. All of it goes down during the Passover celebration. This is not a coincidence. This fact informs and reorients our understanding and appreciation of the gospel and the meaning of the cross. In other words, John is saying, Jesus is also saying, if you want to understand this, if you want to understand the gospel, you have to look through the story of the Passover. So what was the Passover all about? Why did God want to deliver his people? I won't take a quiz since we've already been here. What, what was the Passover all about? Why did God want to deliver his people? It's this simple. He wanted to set them free to worship him. Go back to what God tells Moses. I am going to set my people free so they can worship me. The exodus, in other words, was God's victory over the powers of evil to rescue his people so they could become, God's words, a royal priesthood. The exodus, the Passover, was crucial not so much to forgive the people of their sins as it was to set them free to fulfill their God-given destiny. What was that destiny? Simply to go to heaven when they died? What was that destiny even just to go to the promised land while they lived? No. Way, way back, long ago, God chose one man. Do you remember this part of the story? One man specifically to birth a nation called Israel. Why? In order for that nation to become a light for all peoples, to remember and return to the Lord. Again, why? So they could be forgiven and go to heaven? Hardly. The real problem of sin, once again, is not that it leads us needing to be forgiven. The real problem of sin, we need to be forgiven, but the real problem of sin is that it messes up our vocation. It messes up what we were created for. And if you've forgotten, what do we exist for? Why are we created? We are created to worship and glorify God, to reflect his image. We've been created in his image. We exist to reflect his image, to cultivate the fruitfulness and thriving of all creation. Do you remember the beginning of the story? God doesn't say, hey, don't get into trouble, otherwise i got to forgive you, and then you get you to heaven. God says, I've given you all of this. I've created you in my image so that you can be fruitful and multiply. Flourish. Show me what you can do as you worship me. Represent my rule over this whole world. Glorify me by what you create. My friends, the real problem of sin is that it leaves the universe out of joint. It leaves God's larger and loving purposes for creation not going ahead as intended. And Jesus is tapping into this as he implies through his example here and as he establishes his offering of his life for us all that the meaning of the cross, the message of the gospel is the ultimate exodus. 
It is the final Passover. This is the conclusion of the long story of God's plan to put things right. Starting way back with Abraham, through Moses, Joshua, David, and the prophets, leading all the way to Jesus as the true Israel, setting us free, covering us with his blood as the lamb, and carrying us through the waters to lead us back into our work of worship for the glory of all creation. Here it is. If I haven't gotten you yet. How we understand the gospel changes not only how we share the gospel, how we understand the gospel changes how we live the gospel. The cross, in other words, isn't about we guilty sinners being forgiven so that we can go to heaven. The cross is about we adulterous, idolatrous, broken and ashamed people being rescued, being reconciled, and being redeemed in order to become the worshipers we were meant to be. The workers we have been called to be in God's restoration movement, the kingdom of God. And that's it. That's why the gospel is so small. And that's why some of us choose to keep it small. Because what comes next in Acts, what comes next in the letters, perhaps is the most surprising or unexpected part of the gospel for all of us. And it's discovering that this victory, all this change that we've been talking about, that's accomplished, that's established, that's delivered by Jesus on the cross is to be shared, is to be manifest, is to be spread, is to be cultivated by us, by you, by me, by us, in the power of the Holy Spirit, through our lives, our work, our witness. We who believe this good news will, by the grace of God in following Jesus, become the prophet's the priests, the ambassadors of the kingdom of God. The hope of this big gospel is not just going to heaven to be with God, but it's the vision of a new earth and at the heavenly city as the place where God's authority over all of life is made complete. And that means that the cross of Christ is not just resting content. This is not about just us resting content in the freedom of our forgiveness and again, if that's all you think the cross is about, if that's what you think the gospel is, that you're a sinner, Jesus died for you and you're forgiven, and when you die you can know you go to heaven, of course you're sitting on your rears. Of course you're doing nothing. Of course nothing changes. But if all of a sudden you understand that you are not just forgiven, but that you have been set free, that the problem isn't just about you, but it's about this whole world that we live in, that the world that's not the way it's supposed to be is God making it right, that God is righting all the wrongs, and more than that, that God seeks to continue to extend that freedom, to set things right, to reveal his grace and love through you. Sitting on your rear is no longer an option. Putting your hands in your pocket, bowing your head and praying before bed or before a meal is not going to cut it. Reading your Bible every now and again when you get into a jam because you want to know what God's going to do for you isn't going to work anymore. 
and telling other people who really you're judging in your head, you're condemning that you disdain, hey, I'm not perfect, I'm just forgiven. That's not going to fly either. My friends, <laughs> Jesus doesn't just want us. Jesus didn't just come so we could rest content with the freedom of our forgiveness. He comes he gives himself to us so that we would extend and share this liberating reconciliation with every and in every relationship in every sphere of our broken world. As you leave this morning, never forget this. The smaller your gospel, the smaller its impact. The smaller your gospel, the smaller your impact. We wear these. I wore mine this morning and I love my cross and I'm not telling you not to wear one. We should wear crosses. But my friends, may the size of the crosses we wear around our necks never diminish our remembrance, our awareness, our pondering of the bigger historical reality of the cross that doesn't just hang around your neck or mine, but lovingly overshadows our broken and weary universe. Because a cross that has no weight isn't worth carrying. But the cross of Christ carries and bears the weight of the world. So can we be done? Can we agree? Let's be done with shorthand, slimmed-down presentations of the gospel. In pointing to the cross of Christ, what we receive, what we share, is more than a message of personal deliverance, an escape plan from hell. It is the promise of community redevelopment. It is a rescue operation to restore all creation. For the good news of the cross is not that we who believe in Jesus will one day have a different address when we die, but that we who follow Jesus, all who follow Jesus will become a different kind of people. A people of truth spoken in love. A people of grace expressed through acts of justice, mercy, and hope. May we, starting today, preoccupy ourselves less about going to heaven when we die and instead, led by the Spirit of God, focus on living for eternity before we die by offering the first fruits of a new heaven and a new earth here and now. Yes, you and I, we can look to the cross. We can. We can look to the cross and say, Christ died for me. Christ died for me. Jesus loves me. We can say that. We should. But let us always look closer and wider at the cross and never forget to also say, to realize Christ died for all. For God so loved the world. Amen. Amen.